I invite you again to turn in your personal copies of God's Word to another prophetic book, this time a minor prophet, Jonah. If you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 774. We're going to be focusing on verses 4 to 10 this evening, but for our sake, so we can get a little bit better context of where we are in the book, or just really the first chapter, we're going to read uh, all of the verses of chapter 1 together. Let us give our careful attention again to the reading and to the hearing of God's word. This is Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittiah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said, they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Amen. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Would you take a moment to pray with me to ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word? Jesus, we come into your presence again and ask for your help 
in this moment when the word is opened up for us. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate it for us. Would we see this text afresh, each of us? Would we see Christ clearly displayed for us and, and have our hearts drawn to him? Help us to be putting away those things which are in our path of following and worshiping you. Help us to cling to you, Lord Jesus, and to no other. God, bless uh, our time now as we hear the word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. What is it that you're living for? We all know the catechism question. What's your chief end? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what are you living for? What is it that is consuming your mind? Maybe what's the first thing in your mind in the morning? Maybe what's the last thing on your mind in the evening when you lay your head down to sleep? Perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's a status or a title. Perhaps it's boasting maybe in something like uh, how productive you are, how well things are going at work, perhaps how well you're doing in the sight of others. A few years ago, I heard a story about a man who was very successful. He'd really accomplished what we would call the American dream. He, he did it exactly uh, like we would try to do that if we were trying to achieve that. Um, he had a lot of money. Uh, he had really so much money that anything he wanted to do, anywhere he wanted to go, he would be able to do that with ease. And so after years of having an abundance of money, one day he came to the realization that his life was no longer worth living. He lost a desire for most things in this life, and he slowly began to isolate himself in solitude and boredom. And all the things that promised to thrill him, all the things of this world that promised to satisfy, all of a sudden became very uh, dull and seemingly useless. And after he had possession of everything that he wanted in this life, all the success, all of the money that he could earn uh, in a lifetime, he was let down. He set his hope on something that couldn't satisfy. And tragically, uh, years down uh, the line, after he realized his life was no longer worth living, he decided to take it himself. When the police came on the scene and they, they were discovering his body, they looked in his pockets, they saw in one pocket $30,000 in cash, and in the other pocket they found a note. And on it it said, I have discovered that during my life, piles of money do not bring happiness. I'm taking my life because I can no longer stand the solitude and boredom. When I was an ordinary man in New York, I was happy. But now that I possess millions, I am infinitely sad and prefer death. Friends, I tell you this story not to scoff at this man or, or, or to try to ridicule him in any particular way, but I, I put him before you to, to show you that this is often the path where idolatry ends. If you're looking to anything other than, than Christ, this is the path that it's going to end on. And for the person we just read about, he was a very religious man. He was day by day, moment by moment, consumed with worship. He was bowing down to an idol deep within his heart. As he woke up in the morning, he was consumed with success and with pursuing money. As he laid his head down at night, he was consumed with achieving more and more power, more and more influence. But at the end of this man's journey, as after he climbed the mountain and he got to the top where he could finally wrap his hands around the idol that he was pursuing, he found it to be nothing but worthless. It was, it was vanity. All the money in the world couldn't buy him 
purpose. It couldn't satisfy his deepest desires. And so tonight we're going to be looking at idolatry. But what exactly is idolatry? How are we going to understand this word as we talk about it throughout the evening? Well, one commentator identifies it or defines it for us as really anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, a counterfeit God is anything so central to your life that if you should lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. And so in the case of Jonah, this evening we're going to see idols within his heart and idols outside uh, of himself in, in, the, in the path of the, the pagan sailors. We're going to see two radically different groups of religious people. We're going to see Jonah, who is, uh, again, a man of God. He's a prophet. And then those pagan sailors, those who maybe know nothing about Yahweh, the God of Israel. We're going to see that these men are clinging to lifeless and, and vain imaginations, and it's like sand that's slipping through their fingers or like smoke that vanishes in a moment. And so our story begins this evening with the Lord's focus upon a boat where we see those two groups of men fleeing to Tarshish. They're going for very different reasons, and the Lord's going to confront them as they're on the waters. It says for us in verse 4, this terrible storm that's there, it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And so this leads us to our first point this evening in the first verses 4 to 6. The Lord confronts our idols. The Lord confronts our idols. The author is going to contrast these three responses of the sailors and then three responses of Jonah, uh, how they're responding to the tempest. And the first response of the sailors is one of fear. They're seeing everything that's going on around them, and they're realizing very quickly that this isn't an ordinary storm. This isn't something brought about because of uh, normal, natural causes. This is something that's rather divine. Uh, God is lashing out uh, in fury at something that's on the ship or someone that's on the ship. This is very unique. And then secondly, after being stricken with fear, they're going to turn to false religion. Every man's going to cry out to his own God. <clears throat> He's going to cry out to his own God uh, and, and cry out for him for help. <clears throat> but there's going to be no amount of fervent prayer uh, to any of these false gods that are going to be helpful. Uh, then thirdly, they're going to go on from there, and after spending some time in fear and seeking God with, with false, false religion, they're going to focus on their own abilities. They're going to turn to the works of their own hands. They're going to see, uh, perhaps if they just lighten the load, if they just get more and more cargo, more and more weight off the boat, that it won't sink. But look at the text again. Look at the language that the author is using. Notice in verse 4 that the Lord is going to hurl a tempest on the sea. And so the sailors respond by hurling cargo off of the boat to lighten it for them. Perhaps they could outwit God in this hurling. Make the boat lighter, and that could maybe uh, overpower the tempest that's on the water. But after all these attempts, the tempest is only getting worse and worse as the night goes on. And so after that, we turn our attention to the prophet. How, are, how is he responding to the tempest? Well, much more briefly, he's just going to do three things. He's going to go into the ship. He's going to lay down. He's going to fall asleep. 
He's going to go into the ship, he's going to lay down, and he's going to fall asleep. And perhaps you know what that feeling feels like with Jonah. He's received this great commission from God to go to the Gentiles, and then he's willfully disobeying. He decides that maybe he can, he can flee from his troubles by just, by just going to sleep. He can flee from the pressures and responsibilities that he has. And this response may provide for him and for us a temporary relief, but it's not going to fix the problems. You can't sleep off your sin. You can't sweep sin under the rug, but sin has to be dealt with. And the Lord cares for you, his saints, far too much to let your sin and your idolatry go without being confronted. We have, in fact, a very confrontational God. God is not pleased to receive simple, uh, mere lip service from his bride. But the Lord Jesus has made it his mission to intercede for you in prayer, to, to mediate at the right hand of the Father that you might be sanctified that you might be washed clean. And in Christ, as your groom, he will pursue you even in the midst of your rebellion. And that's what's happening in Jonah's case. Jonah's going to be in a deep sleep, and the captain of the ship is going to come in with a a thundering voice, all wet from the, the water and the rain outside. And he's going to awaken Jonah from his slumber in verse 6, and he's going to say, What are you doing sleeping? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And at a time when the Gentiles are calling out to their gods, all these various gods, these gods that are no help at all, they are all idols, deaf, blind, dumb, they don't even truly exist. We find the prophet being prayerless. He's not looking to God, he's not crying out to God for help, but he's failing in his office as being a prophet and declaring the word to these men. And God uses the same language he uses to command Jonah to go to Nineveh in verse 2. Look there again with me as well. Verse 2, the Lord says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. Isn't that interesting? In the the mouth of a pagan sailor, who has no concern and no care for God, we see him echoing the words, the, the command, the commission that God gave to Jonah. He's saying, cry out to your God. Maybe we can be saved. And so what a humiliating and shameful moment this would have been for the prophet Jonah. The man who knows why this storm is on the water. The man who knows how to uh, intervene, how to pray to God, what to do in order to uh, cry out and have God hear his prayer. And just like God's pursuit of Jonah and God's pursuit of these sailors, Christ sets out to pulverize and smash our idols. This relentless storm is a picture of what Christ really thinks of our idolatry. Do you run to to food and to entertainment when you're hard-pressed? Where do you turn to for your help and to your comfort? Perhaps you turn to isolation or to sleep. Do you turn to distracting busy work? Friends, the Lord says to you in Exodus 34, he gives us the command. He says, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The Lord is jealous for every part of you. He's not satisfied with just a portion or or a small part of you, but he wants your entire being, 
your mind, your heart, your will, your entire soul, your body, all the actions that you commit. He wants that for himself because you are his bride. You belong to him as the church. And if we do not forsake our idols when we are confronted by them, by Christ, we really have a promise here that Christ will bring a tempest upon our life. He will pursue us. He will do whatever it needs uh, to be done so that the idols of our souls that remain deep in our souls would be brought to the forefront. The Lord is not coddling Jonah in this moment of his rebellion, but he's attacking Jonah. He's attacking his heart. He's attacking the heart of these sailors. And so hear this account of Jonah and tremble at its threatenings. When you find yourself in a similar situation where you're maybe struggling to put off idolatry, whatever that idol is or idols are in your life, flee to Christ's mercy and promises and know that you're giving uh, and know that uh, apart from, from turning to Christ and apart from fleeing those idols, Christ, because he loves you, will com- uh, pursue you with a compassionate chastisement. And so what calling or responsibility are you fleeing from this evening? What idol is it that you're putting your hope in? Respond to God's warning of chastisement in Jonah with faith and repentance by turning from that idol and turning to Christ with a newfound obedience. Because Christ is that so-called idol. He's He's the one true God that when you get to the top of the mountain and you grab hold of him, you're satisfied. You're not longing and looking for more. You're not, you're not wishing that, oh, I wish I pursued another idol or another God. No, Jesus satisfies your deepest desires to the most infinite and deep deg- degree. As we read this morning from Psalm 16, as we sung, pleasures flow out of the right hand. Joy flow out of the right hand of the Father. Your career can't do that for you. Money can't do that for you. Children, family, good things can't do that for you, but only the Lord in heaven. And so unfortunately, this is not Jonah's response. He's not so much looking to the Lord. This mouthpiece of God is instead silent. And rather, instead of him, it's the godless sailors who are seen in a favorable light. They're the ones crying out and inquiring for some mercy from some God. And so after seeing the Lord confront the idols of Jonah and the sailors, secondly, Um, we see that the Lord reveals our idols. The Lord reveals our idols. And so after the sailors have these two failed attempts at false religion and works of their hands, they turn to casting lots. If you don't know what that is, it's simply just rolling dice, uh, something similar to that, to discern the Lord's will. But it's interesting because this is a rather Hebrew practice. Um, This is what the Hebrews would have used to maybe gain guidance and direction from the Lord. And so yet again, these Gentiles, these pagans are put in front of the prophet Jonah, and they're shown to be more pious, more godly than he is. And as they seek the will of the gods, the Lord makes the lot fall upon the guilty culprit of all this. The lot falls on Jonah. And so everyone looks at him. Everyone is, is wondering what he's done. Why is this happening And so now the Lord forces Jonah's hand. The Lord has to tell these people who potentially he would not desire to tell. He has to tell them about this God that he serves and all 
uh, his, his ex, uh, how far his power extends. And the questions that the sailors are going to ask, they're very religious in nature. They're going to ask him uh, in verse 8 to confirm that this is true. Has the lot rightfully fallen upon you? He's going to affirm yes. And they're going to ask him questions about his occupation. Uh, that would give insight into why he's wanting to go to Tarshish, why he's traveling there in the first place. <clears throat> and then they're going to ask about his hometown, his country, and his race. And so the questions that they're asking him, they're not random, but they're purpose, purposeful and pointed. If the sailors could get to know the answers to these questions of, of uh, his hometown, occupation, country, and race, they'd be able to cry out to certain localized deities uh, because there was supposed to be a God over every sphere, every aspect of each of these uh, lives. And so interestingly, Jonah's going to answer the last question first. The last question of verse 8 asks, and of what people are you? Jonah puts his primary identity first. His primary identity of who he really is, is that he's a Hebrew from the nation of Israel. He then reveals to the sailors that Yahweh is the God whom he serves. And then he confesses in verse 9 that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And as they hear that one God is responsible for all of the calamity that's befalling them uh, on the water, they're seeing this God who is uh, unique. He's not like other gods. He's not restricted to just a certain country or a certain city or maybe just land or to sea, but he's a God over every sphere of life. He's even God over Baal. Maybe they cried out to Baal. Baal was the God of, of the rains and of, uh, of, of storms and of thunder. And yet Jonah's rightfully affirming, it's not Baal that's bringing this upon you, but it's the Lord, the God over the dry land and the earth. But what's perplexing is how Jonah is able to recite this creed while he's so defiantly in rebellion against the Lord. He recites that the Lord is the God of, of the sea and the dry land as he's on a ship headed in the exact opposite direction of where he's supposed to go to Nineveh. It's, it's like le a left and right. There's, there's complete differences in where he's going. He is serving the true idol and God of his heart, which is Israel. That's Jonah's idol. That's the thing. That's what he loves. And dear brothers and sisters, could it be said of us, us Sabbatarians, that we are actually serving something that is beautiful, something that is is glorious, as Christ says, rather than Christ himself. Is it possible that we could be uh, serving the Lord uh, and, and doing the things that he would ask of us while being asleep and not even knowing about it? In God's good providence, Ron uh, spoke of this this morning as he was talking about uh, us coming to the Lord's table. Are we looking to something or someone other than Jesus. If Jesus were to come and look at our congregation and he were to write us a letter, just as Ron was pointing out earlier, what would he say? Would he say something like he said to the church in, uh, of Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, that they have abandoned the love they had at first? You can easily fall into a trap of loving a means or a gift rather than the giver of the gift and not even know it. And friends, the Lord has been so, so good to our congregation. The Lord has 
blessed us with a desire for a hunger for the truth. And we ought to praise God for that. And I know that we, all of us, we want a pure and a right understanding of God and his word. But what's the reason? Why do we want to know more doctrine? Why do we read the books that we read? If it ends in merely gaining good information, we are missing the mark. Because good doctrine is not the end, but it's meant to transform you in your conformity to Christ. John Owens once wrote, uh, communicated this idea that he said, we study not merely to gain information about God, but to intimately know and obey God. That's the purpose of our study. That's why we, we come to, to be in God's presence even this evening. It's not just to gain information. It's not to know the right things, but it's to know God and to walk with him, to seek to obey him by the, uh, the Spirit's help. And books from century past must not be the end of our study. If our reading of books uh, does not lead us to a higher view of Christ and does not lead us to putting into practice what we read, then the theology that we are running after has really become an end of itself. Christ is always, must always be the end for the Christian. Because anything outside of Christ is going to lead to a miserable end. Brothers, good books can be an idol on top of the mountain if it's not held in its right proportion. And you may be able to join in Jonah's confession that, amen, the Lord is God of heaven and earth, of, of sea and dry land. But if your life consists of loving a good thing that is overseen by Christ, rather than having that good thing be a means to commune with Christ, that in and of itself is an idol. And idolatry is, is not a thing of past generations. It's not something that only those, those foolish people of old did as they made idols of their own hands, of metals and, and precious gems and stones. But we, today, are still battling idols in our own country, in our own church. The church will always be, have to be on guard against idolatry. Jonah didn't bow down to an idol, but the idol of prosperity and the security of Israel ruled his life. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. That's why he didn't want to bring the word to those, those heathen Gentiles in Assyria because they threaten his chief end. They threaten the fact of, of why Jonah is existing, which is the prosperity of the land of Israel. This local church may one day close its doors. Our denomination may one day cease to be, but Christ, who is Lord of this church, and Christ, who is Lord of our denomination, will never cease to be God. Christ loves his bride far too much, and he is far too jealous for your affections to allow you to continue to pursue the idols deep within your heart. And so let's turn our attention to the last point this evening, verses 9 to 10. It's the fact that the Lord attacks our idols. The Lord confronts our idols, he reveals them, and then he attacks them. We read in verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
And so while we read the book of Jonah, primarily to look at ourselves, we should look at Jonah and see how are we failing in this case. Let's just turn our attention for a few moments to these unbelieving pagans. The Lord's not just interested in saving uh, this prophet Jonah, but he's interested in also these sailors, these, these uh, men who are of ill repute. These sailors are outsiders. They likely curse. They likely commit fornication. They're likely happy doing their own thing, uh, living the life how they want to live it. They might not be very concerned about laying down their life to go serve uh, this Lord Yahweh. They might be content doing their own thing. But what does the Lord do for these men? He sends them a, a miserable prophet. And so marvel at the majesty and wonder of our God and how he brings salvation to these heathens as we um, look at verse 16 as, as they're saved. Look at God's heart for the unbeliever. Look at God's heart for the person who is the outsider, who's not nice and clean and who's rough around the edges, who maybe it's not very delightful to be in their presence. Think about what they call Jesus. Think about what they accused him of. They're like, he's a friend of the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, of course, Jesus didn't just hang out with them just to, to be friends with them. He was going to be with them to bring them the gospel. But could that be said of us? Are there people in our life that are very rough around the edges, neighbors, coworkers, whatever it is, that are these outsiders, not in this, uh, in this, uh, in this clean camp? What the Pharisees saw in Jesus was a man who didn't allow societal norms or pressures to stop him from sharing the gospel. For it was the heathen, the outsider, the unbeliever, that's who Jesus came to save. He didn't come to save those who were righteous in and of themselves, who had everything figured out, who didn't need a savior. Not, not just those who made all the right confessions, but Christ came to save men, women, and children who were outsiders, who were dead in their sins. And so will we go to the outsider among us? Will we go to those who Christ has put into our life and bring them this news about this God of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land? The Lord puts before you this, uh, a warning this evening in the story of Jonah. Think about how furious this storm was. It's so furious. They think the ship's going to break apart. It's going to break in half. This is what God's fury towards idolatry looks like. Jonah has a religion that's lifeless and dead. And never once in the Old Testament do we ever see Jonah condemning the sin and the idolatry of Israel. Jonah's a prosperity preacher. He preaches about the prosperity, both monetarily and geographically, of the nation of Israel, while there's sin all around him in Israel. There's the second temple in the, in the northern uh, camp of Israel where they're going to offer sacrifices. And he's saying nothing about it. And he's so focused on his idol of his heart uh, of the land of the Hebrews of Israel. And this is exactly what idolatry does. It blinds us to the reality of things as they really are. Idolatry produces a shallow Christianity where you can profess faith in Christ while mingling with it service to idols. One commentator writes, Shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists 
and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. When your identity is not in Christ, the things of this world are going to come upon you, and you're going to turn to that, that idol that you're climbing towards on that mountain, and if it's not Christ, it's not going to satisfy. It's going to cause that, that fleshly nature to come out of you, to, to be addicted to beauty and pleasure, to be filled with anxiety and overwork. Christ is calling you, the church, to bring your idols to the heart-seeking, idol-smashing God because Christ has purchased your freedom from idolatry. Our great God in heaven relentlessly pursues his bride and he will send storm after storm upon you in your life to ruthlessly attack your idols. And he does this because he doesn't want anything obstructing his union with you. He doesn't want anything to obstruct the worship that you give to him because that's where you find your life. That's where you find your joy and your satisfaction. The Lord is jealous for you. He wants all of you. He wants everything that you listen to. He wants everything that you, that you watch. He wants every friend that you have, uh, every relationship, every job opportunity that you have. He wants it all submitted to his feet. When you do this, this is where you find life. This is where you find joy when all of those, those times of turning to the other people or the other things, you see it for what it is. It could never satisfy, but Christ and Christ alone he is the one who satisfies. The Lord is to his church what a groom is to a bride. Our God has entered into a holy covenant with his bride and he has said that he will love her with a steadfast love that has a basis upon his name and his covenant. And so imagine a groom and his bride. Imagine the bride going off to pursue other lovers. The groom's jealous for her. He's not going to go and allow her to do that. He's going to pursue her. He's going to make sure that, that she is wholly his. He's jealous for her love. He cares for her. And this is what Christ does for us. The Lord fights for those who belong to us. The Lord fights for you. The Lord fights for the purity of your heart. Again, he wants every part of you. He's not satisfied with a portion or a compartment. This is your holy time. This is your church time. And then over here, it's, this is your, your, um, your other time where it's just you. Christ doesn't have to be a part of that. Now, Christ wants all of you. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, For Jesus, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He will destroy those idols that are within your heart, defiling you in one way or another. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're pursuing any other idol or any other so-called God other than the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, know that as his bride, the Lord is ready to do battles with your idols because he loves you. Take heart in that. Take heart as you are perhaps failing. Maybe there's idols in your life that time after time after time you cannot seem to put away. You've sought the Lord for years and still you are still struggling to not love this person or this thing, whatever it is. Take heart that God is fighting on your behalf. He is working in your heart. 
Take heart that Christ does battle with your idols because he loves you, his bride, the church. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you love us enough to chastise us. Lord, we think about perhaps the times in our life which we've faced the chastisement of the Lord. And though it was painful, though it was difficult, it was not enjoyable for any of us, we know that you did it in love and we know that we are better off for it because you pursued us. And so, Lord Jesus, this week as we go out, help us to remember the holy God that we serve and help us to serve you with all of our being, leaving nothing uh, apart from you, leaving no compartment of our heart or our mind. But Lord Jesus, have all of us. Be the one being that we are pursuing. Be our chief end in this life that we are running after, wanting to commune with, wanting to enjoy more than anything else in this world. We thank you for your mercy and for your pursuit of us. Help us to love you more and more each day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pick up our